Humpty Dumpty, I did not expect to sound like that. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. And my question to you is, so what? What scenario could you imagine a story like this being useful? If you have a, a two- or three-year-old constantly sitting on the edge of a couch or, or some unsafe place, maybe you could imagine yourself telling them this story as a warning. Now, this story is definitely geared towards little kids because of the short length and the simplicity of the form, and also the fact that it rhymes. But for a second, let's ignore the form and search to see if there's any ageless wisdom built into this simple story. Look at line one. That's the, the setting. Our character is in a potentially dangerous circumstance. In line two, the potential danger comes to fruition. Lines three and four show us that some danger, once it is realized, is permanent. Line three especially shows that even great resources and wealth can't solve every problem. So while this story does apply to a three-year-old sitting in a high place that they shouldn't be sitting, there's actually deeper wisdom built in. Can you think of any biblical proverbs that are communicating the same message as this Humpty Dumpty story? There is one. There might be more than one. Proverbs 6, 32 through 35, this is not our text tonight, but it says, He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. For jealousy makes a man furious. He will not spare when he takes revenge. He will accept no compensation. He will refuse, though you multiply gifts. All the same elements of Humpty Dumpty are here in these biblical Proverbs. The voluntary placing of oneself into a dangerous situation, the fruition of that danger, the consequences which are permanent, no matter what is done, no matter how much wealth, no matter how much power you have. Proverbs also calls this person a person who is carrying fire close to his chest. They're going to get burned. I know this seems like a very random way to, to begin on a Sunday night. And I was shocked when this morning, Pastor Jim started his sermon also by telling us about playground rhymes. <laughs> I couldn't believe that they, he didn't know that I was going to do this and I didn't know he was going to do that. I've given you this example though because I want you to realize that sometimes when we hear a story and we don't think hard about the so what or the application or the lesson Sometimes, even in our own Bible reading, we settle for an application like, don't sit on the edge of the couch. It's dangerous. When something more is being offered by the story. There's another mistake, though, that we sometimes make when we read stories. It's a mistake that I made as a child uh, when I heard the boy who cried wolf. There's a little boy walking in the woods. You know the story. He thought it would be funny to trick people. So he yells, there's a wolf. There's a wolf. 
And all the men in the village come running with pitchforks and muskets and whatever you use to kill wolves, wolf repellent or something. (laughs) And uh, it turns out the boy was just kidding. There's no wolf. And he does it two or three more times, and he develops a reputation for it so that one day when there really is a wolf, nobody listens and nobody comes to help. When I heard that story as a small child, maybe I was too young, maybe I'm just not that smart, my takeaway was something like, don't go outside alone because there might be wolves there. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was the wisdom that maybe five-year-old Michael gleaned. That's kind of like reading Cain and Abel and thinking that the lesson is, don't murder your brother. That's good advice, but that's not the point of the story. The story, that story, Cain and Abel, is about the power that sin has over humanity. And it's supposed to awaken affections for the snake crusher, the one who will solve our problems, who was mentioned just a few verses earlier to Cain and Abel's parents, Adam and Eve. Lots of examples. But tonight and next week, I'm going to be sharing with you a two-part story from the Old Testament. Tonight's story will be somewhat familiar, but next week's story will be very familiar. And I'm going to do my best to help you enter the story with fresh eyes so that we can see what's really there and we can pull the best possible lesson out of the story. More than just don't sit on the couch, more than just uh, don't go outside because there might be wolves. The name of this two-part story is A Tale of Two Kings, The Chicken and the Champion. You can tell that I like to name things. Allow me to introduce to you one of our kings by pointing out a trend that has plagued all of history. This trend is imperfect leadership. Imperfect leadership is all over the Old Testament. In the very first pages of Scripture, we meet a leader whose name is Adam. Authority and responsibility are bestowed on him by God. He has the authority to name his wife and name the animals. And he has the responsibility to tend the garden, to exercise dominion over creation, and to fill the earth. And of course, the responsibility to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. How does Adam do in his leadership role? Not very well. In fact, it's possible that Adam was standing there watching and listening as his wife grabbed the fruit and the serpent serpent tempted her, and he did nothing. Even if he wasn't there when it was happening, when his wife offered him the fruit that God forbade them to eat, he followed her willingly. Because we learn in the New Testament that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. And when Adam learned that his wife had sinned, he chose to follow her willingly. He knew what he was doing, but he didn't want to lose his wife, so he sinned. And Adam is far from the last imperfect leader that we meet in the pages of the Old Testament. Let's talk about Moses. Moses is known as a great leader. Moses was given incredible power and the ability to perform signs for the Israelites and the Egyptians and But he also tried to avoid the burden of leadership, and he asked God to send someone else. Another time, he got impatient, and he struck the rock in the wilderness twice, 
against God's command, and for that he was prevented himself from entering the promised land. So he's another imperfect leader. What about Moses' successor, Joshua? Joshua also accomplished great things for the Lord, but he made some key mistakes. And if you were to study Joshua's life and his decisions, there would be two incidents that stick out to you. There are times when Joshua did not seek the Lord, and both of those times resulted in major consequences for God's people. Think through some of the judges of Old Testament Israel. We're just working our way chronologically through the Bible. Some of the judges in the Old Testament who are lifted up for their faith in Hebrews 11, and rightly so, yet their depravity is revealed. Gideon delivered the people from Midian. He said he wasn't going to be a king, but then he starts acting like a king. He even made an ephod for the people to bow down to. He had like 70 sons, which is exactly what a king would do. And one of his own children marred his legacy. Samson, he was mighty. He was cunning. He worked on behalf of the Israelites against the Philistines. But although he was stronger than any man, he seemed to be controlled by his lust for women. What about Jephthah, another judge? After a victory in battle, he made a foolish vow to sacrifice the first thing at his house that came to greet him, and it happened to be his daughter. All of these leaders had people relying on them. All of these leaders accomplished great things, but all of them were flawed. Imagine living back then as an Israelite toward the end of the period of the judges, having known all these stories of imperfect leaders by reading the book of the law and wondering, when will the perfect leader come? When will the prophecy of the snake crusher be fulfilled? When will the prophet who is greater than Moses show up? Who will rescue us? You can start turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 15. Samuel is the last of the judges. This is our first story where the first of our two kings will be introduced. And we meet this king not at the very beginning of his reign, but at a critical moment in his life and leadership. He is the first official king of Israel, and you know his name. It's King Saul. So tonight, we're going to work through this story in four scenes and evaluate the big picture and the lesson at the end. I know the big idea is at the top of your notes. We're going to circle back around to that. For now, your first blank is scene one, God gives instructions. We're in 1 Samuel 15, verse 1. How does, how does God give instructions? Well, he does it through his judge and prophet Samuel. Verse 1 says, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. 
Those are the instructions that God gives. A few things to notice here. The first is that they are very, very clear instructions. They're not ambiguous in the least. Saul knows what to do. Another thing to notice is the justice of God. He specifically says, I have noted or I remember what the Amalekites did to the Israelites during the Exodus. I've been remembering, I've been waiting, and now is the time when I'm going to make it right. He has tracked the injustices done against Israel for hundreds of years, and he's going to make it right through his chosen leader, King Saul. Some specifics about the instructions that he's given. He is told to devote it all to destruction. This is known as the ban of harem. The ban of harem. It means to completely destroy. It's the same idea as the word harem. It sounds almost exactly the same. A king's harem are his wives who are off limits to everyone else. In the same way, the ban of harem means that the spoils of the war are off limits. Hands off. Don't touch. It's all devoted to destruction. One of my Bible teachers in college told me that uh, to violate harem is to become harem. Meaning, if you take some of the devoted things, then you too will be devoted to destruction, which is what happened to Achan in the Battle of Jericho. He took some of the things that they were supposed to destroy, so they burned him and his family. He became harem, devoted to destruction. So Saul is given these clear instructions, and God expected perfect obedience. And Saul, more than anyone else, is equipped to accomplish this task. Sometimes we have jobs that we don't really feel accomplished or equipped to do. I worked several different jobs through high school, and right after high school, I went to community college. Uh, one of the jobs that I had was working for a farmer. Now, I am, uh, I'm okay as a, like outdoor, with-my-hands worker, but I'm not the guy who's figuring things out by himself. I'm more of an assistant, right? I need some direction. So I'm working for this farmer, doing my best. One of the jobs that he gives me is to fill up all of the tires on all of the vehicles on his property. Like, I've got this. That's, I know what a tire is. I can do this. Uh, the thing is, he had probably 40 vehicles <laughs> between cars, tractors, other things, just none of them working. I'm not really sure why he wanted air in the tires of vehicles that weren't working. Maybe some of them were working, not sure. Uh, the tools that I had to accomplish this was a portable air, com- air tank, not a compressor, just an air tank. The air compressor was in the shop, so I had to carry this thing around. It's like the handle's in the middle of it, so it's far away from my body. I'm walking all around the farm like this with this heavy thing, and it holds only enough air for like three tires probably. So I had to carry it to a vehicle, get down on my knees, and like reach over to for like 30 seconds each tire because they're all the way flat. And then, oh, it runs out of air. I still got one tire. I need to carry it all the way back. Like, why didn't you use hoses? Well, it was a really muddy spring day, so I tried to use a bunch of hoses so that I wouldn't have had to carry it so far. But then it was always getting stuck in the mud or caught on something. And I was like doing this with a hose, trying to get it unhooked from things. And it was so frustrating. And I did not feel like I was equipped to do the job that that man had given me. On top of all of that, some of the cars were parked really close to each other or right up against the wall. So how in the world are you supposed to get in there and fill up all those tires with air? Not well-equipped, at least in my opinion. But this issue of being ill-equipped is not Saul's problem. 
Saul's problem was not an issue of resources or abilities. We'll see later that his problem was something inside of himself. We'll touch on that in just a second. But jumping back into our story, Saul has his instructions. What will he do with them? You'll notice as we start reading in verse 4 that Saul is a lot like the leaders of Israel that came before him. He partially obeys. That's your next blank. Scene two is that the leader partially obeys. Follow along as I read verses 4 through 9. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havelia as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Notice, once again, his amazing following. Verse 4, over 200,000 men, 200,000 soldiers and more from Judah. It's very likely that uh, those of us in this room, men in our 20s and 30s, maybe even younger than that, if we were in Israel at that time, we would be following Saul which would have been the right thing to do. He was the Lord's anointed, chosen leader. How many of us would would find leading an organization of of 200 people to be a daunting task? I mean, that's a lot of responsibility. Not very many people do that. Imagine Saul leading an army of 200,000. This would have been a heavy, consuming responsibility. He was probably an amazing man. I'm sure he felt the weight of the tasks before him. But notice also in the passage God's mercy to the Kenites. There's, there's another group in this story besides the Amalekites, the Kenites. Just like how God was punishing the Amalekites for their evil toward Israel, he was also rewarding and showing mercy to this other group because they helped Israel on their way. So we get to see both sides of God's justice, his wrath against his enemies and his mercy towards those who are friends of his people. The last thing to notice in this section is that Saul's obedience is obviously incomplete. This truth is obvious to anyone who wants to see it. I would say even Saul, although he's going to have some trouble in a a few minutes. The passage says that Saul and his people spared Agag, spared the king, and they spared the best of the spoils. They would not utterly destroy them. He failed to completely obey what God commanded him. Some jobs when they are partially done, are as good as if you never did any of it at all. Going back to my silly story about filling up tires, let's imagine that I just filled up three tires on every vehicle. How much of the work would I have accomplished? Kind of 75%, kind of 0%, because I wouldn't have done anything to make the vehicles more drivable, right? Three out of four is as good as zero out of four. And in God's eyes, partial obedience is counted as total disobedience, totally useless to God. James 2 says, 
he who keeps the whole law but fails in one point is accountable for all of it. So think with me again about that imagined member of Israel who was waiting for the perfect leader that God has promised. Can you feel his frustration at this point of the story? How many failures are we going to have in our leadership? Saul was anointed king, and even he can't obey. What are we going to do? Who can rescue us? Even today, when we see the the partial obedience and we meditate on our own shortcomings, we might wonder, how can we please God if Saul couldn't even do it? Let's continue reading our story, though, in verse 10, where we see the third scene. This is also the longest scene. The people must follow a better leader than Saul. This is a long section, and I'll read a few verses at a time, and we'll be looking up and down and up and down, just to give you a little warning, but I'll try to keep you updated on what verse number we're on. Verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, and he said, I regret that I've made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. We'll touch on the idea of God's regret later in in this chapter. Um, That phrase causes some to scratch their heads because we we know that God is all-knowing. So it's not as if he's surprised at the disobedience, but he says he regrets here. Uh, you, you would think being all-knowing would prevent regret. It's actually not as complicated of a, as a problem as it might seem like at first, but uh, as long as there's time, we'll, we'll get to that later because it comes up again. But whatever this so-called regret of God is, it's a result of Saul's disobedience, which Saul at first was blind to. And let's read just how blind Saul was in verse 12. Verse 12, And Samuel rose early in the morning, to meet Saul. And it was told to Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So Saul setting up a monument for himself. First of all, that's an indicator of his priorities. He wanted glory. He wanted political prestige. And when Samuel does find Saul, Saul exclaims that uh, he has obeyed. He says, I performed the commandment. And sometimes when someone is quick to explain themselves, especially to authority, it's obvious that there's something not quite right. (laughs) You ever walk into a room with a little kid being mischievous? Little kids are notoriously bad at hiding their guilt, aren't they? You walk into the room and the child is getting into a cupboard or a dresser or something, and they might bolt upright and, uh, hi, Dad, I was just playing. <laughs> and you probably could have gotten away with it, but now, now I'm suspicious because of your reaction. That's how I picture uh, Saul reacting when he sees Samuel coming. Uh, Greetings, Samuel. I have performed the commandment. We all know that you didn't, Saul. Isn't that, uh, isn't that Agag right there, the guy that God told you to kill, standing right behind you? But that's not the way Samuel responds. He's, he's patient, and like a good nuthetic counselor, he asks a question in verse 14. Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? If you have obeyed the command, what is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? 
And Saul provides an excuse. He says, uh, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Notice the bad part, he says, the people, those guys. But the part that he actually obeyed, he said, we all did that. It was the people who sinned. Samuel's not going to have any of this. It's so obvious that Saul didn't obey God. Anyone who wants to see it can. And it's a good reminder for us that the power of sin lies in its ability to deceive us. The power of sin is in its deception. And often people stuck in sin actually can't see it. It's certainly the case for unbelievers. We know that they're blind to sin in a general sense, but it's even true for believers. But a good friend can uh, lovingly show the other person their sin. This isn't the point of the passage, but that's one of the reasons it's so important to be part of a church family, isn't it? So that we can have someone come alongside us and point out our blind spots, the areas where we're not perfectly obeying. But like I said, Samuel's not going to have any of this. Verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord told to me this night. And he said to him, speak. Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Samuel does such a good job of keeping the main thing, the main thing. Saul, your problem is that you didn't obey. It's not the people. It's not the circumstance that you found yourself in. It's you. Why didn't you obey, Saul? But look at verse 20, where Saul doubles down on what he's saying. Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I've brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Verse 21, but the people took the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Once again, blaming others for his sin, justifies it by saying it's for a sacrifice. And interestingly, in Samuel's response in the next verses, he doesn't even acknowledge those excuses. Everyone knows that Saul is wrong. So Samuel says in verse 22, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. If you know about the life of Saul, then that comment about divination in verse 23, maybe some of your translations say witchcraft, that's an interesting comment for Samuel to make because one of the good things that Saul did during his kingship was he drove out the practice of witchcraft from the kingdom. But Samuel tells him that his own disobedience is as bad as divination, as bad as witchcraft. What God wants first and what God wants most is obedience. He didn't need Saul's military strategy or charisma or strength or anything. 
He wanted someone who was after his own heart. And King Saul finally admits his sin in verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and it tore, and Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. This is the verse to remember tonight. Verse 28, that is. This extreme low point in Saul's life gives us the big idea of tonight's sermon, which we'll come back to in a minute because the story isn't over yet. But remember, we're coming back for verse 28. For now, we're going to look at the fourth and final scene. Brutal obedience for a big God. I'm going to read these final few verses for you. You've had to follow along a lot in your Bibles this evening, but as I read, I want you to look for something that looks like a contradiction in these final verses. 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 29. And also, the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he, this is Saul, Saul said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel sent to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Did you catch the apparent contradiction? Verse 29 says that the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. But then that last verse, verse 35, says that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Verse 29 says he will not have regret. 35 says he did regret. Different translations use different words. Nasby says change his mind. KJV uses repent. But the point is, it looks like saying two different things. Did God regret it or not? The text seems to say yes and no at the same time. Is that possible? Maybe it is when you're God. Here's what I mean. Our God is so big. He's so infinite. He's so ununderstandable. Maybe, maybe incomprehensible is a better word. He's so incomprehensible that language cannot contain adequate descriptions of him. And sometimes human writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will describe God by using words uh, that correlate to, uh, to an incomprehensible, they, they correlate an incomprehensible God to words that we can understand. 
Sometimes when the infinite is reduced to language, to words on a page, it looks like a contradiction. But make no mistake, the reality behind the words is no contradiction at all. Did God regret that he made Saul king? No, God knew what was going to happen. It was part of his plan. And as the text says, he is not a man that he should have regret. Yet, did God regret that he had made Saul king? Yes, Saul's disobedience was repulsive to God, and it was as repulsive as witchcraft. And from a human perspective, we would call that regret. The final thing to notice in this scene before we move on to the lesson of the entire story is what I called uh, the brutal disobedience. We see it in verse 33 where Samuel told Agag that as your sword has made women childless, now you'll be childless, or now your mother will be childless among women. And he hacked him to pieces, it says. Kind of graphic and not very nice, someone might say. That wasn't very nice, Samuel. And that's true, but being nice was neither the goal nor the plan Kindness certainly is a virtue, uh, but virtues are not meant to be uh, applied indiscriminately. So to say that uh, Samuel or that God should have been more kind in this situation is kind of similar to saying that we should be uh, more patient when someone we love is having a heart attack, right? Patience is a virtue, but not in that context, right? There's, a, there's worse things than this in the passage and worse things than this in the, in the Bible, by the way, at least from a perspective of our emotions and our feelings of what is right. Sometimes in the Bible, things that God does make us want to say, that's not very nice. And something that I've emphasized to our teens several times and uh, just really is very meaningful to me and it's very hard for me to communicate it adequately, but when I have a problem with the way the Bible describes God, or there's this feeling inside of me that's like, I don't understand how God could do that. What's the appropriate question to ask? What's the appropriate response? Is it, uh, is it that God must be different, or is it, is it that I must be wrong? Like, maybe there's something so wrong with me and my feelings. I'm not going to charge God with wrong just because I don't understand his word. I tried to capture that in the title of this scene, Brutal Obedience for a Big God. We don't always understand the why God chooses to do what he does. But God also doesn't need me or anyone to defend him. We need to be ready to talk about it to unbelievers and anyone who might have questions about why this is in the Bible. But he doesn't need me to defend him. And Christians who take the Bible seriously ought to accept that maybe there's something wrong with them before they would say there's something wrong with God or the Bible. So the two thoughts from this scene tie together in this way. Knowing that God is too big to understand, he regrets, yet he doesn't regret. Doesn't make sense to us. God's too big to understand. We should not impose our feelings of morality upon him. Rather, we should listen to whatever he commands. So you've now heard the story of the first of our two kings. And you can easily guess that Saul is the chicken, not the champion, right? The main reason for calling him a chicken is uh, the reason that he gave for not obeying in verse 24, when he confesses that he feared the people and obeyed their voice. The idol tugging on his heart was the fear of man. Having finished the story, I'd like to ask you the question that I asked after reading Humpty Dumpty. 
So what? The goal of Bible study is not just gaining knowledge. You know the story now. The goal is not just to gain knowledge. It is to be transformed. We need to find a lesson, but not just any lesson. We need to find the application that the author intended us to find in this story. It's easy to pull a lesson of morality, like from Humpty Dumpty, don't sit on the wall, don't sit on the edge of the couch. It's dangerous, don't do it. That's easy. So we could say that the lesson is obey completely, right? That sounds like a good lesson. Obey completely, obey enthusiastically, obey the first time. Don't be like Saul. Don't partially obey. That's a fair thing to say. But guess what? We could say that about pretty much every single text in the Old Testament. This passage tells us to obey. Yeah, it does, but it does more than that. Here's the application or the lesson that I believe we're supposed to find when we meditate on this story. And it's here for you to test it. I think that we're, rather than thinking, don't be like the chicken, how about don't follow the chicken? Don't follow the imperfect leader. As in, don't put your hope in him. Psalm 146 gives a warning almost exactly like this. It says, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Try to think back in order to support this as the lesson that we're supposed to find. Try to think back to the context in which this story is found. Israel had just come through the period of the judges, which was marked by imperfect leadership and rebellion, then imperfect leadership and rebellion, and then imperfect leadership and guess what? More rebellion. A downward spiral that seemed like was going to end them all as a nation, But then in chapter 8 of this book, of 1 Samuel, Israel starts to demand Samuel to anoint a king. They said, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. That's in 1 Samuel 8, 6. And how did the Lord instruct Samuel to reply to this request? Well, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king that shall reign over them. So Samuel did. He warned the people that the king would take their sons into battle, take their sons to work his land. He would take their daughters to tend his house and he would take the best fields and there would be taxes on your grain, taxes on your servants, taxes on your flocks. And listen to the end of the warning that Samuel gives to the Israelites. Samuel says, you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. All this effort, all this warning from God through Samuel, telling them, you know you want a king. This is what it's going to be like. If you want to be like the other nations, you're really going to be like the other nations. You don't want this. But they don't care. They want to be like the other nations. They want a king. They knew their heritage. They were freed slaves from Egypt. Yet being warned by God, they willingly accepted a new king, even though God told them it's going to mean slavery and tyranny. It's easy to judge, throw stones, Don't we do this too, though? 
Aren't we so quick to run back to our slavery of sin? For someone alive at uh, the time of Samuel, the lesson of this story would have been, don't put your hope in the chicken. Keep waiting for the promised deliverer, the snake crusher who was promised to Adam and Eve, the prophet who is better than Moses that was promised to those wandering in the wilderness. Keep waiting. Don't put your hope in the chicken. Keep waiting. That's not the lesson for us, though, is it? As the New Testament church, we have the benefit of knowing the name of that promised deliverer. And we can be tempted to follow something or someone else. We can still mess up. We can still go, to, go into error the way the Israelites did. We can run back to our slavery. But we have the option to call out to Jesus for forgiveness. And we know that he is willing and able to forgive us because of what he accomplished for us on the cross and that he rose again three days later. You see, the title of this little mini-series isn't quite accurate. I did the best I could, but it needs to be amended. A Tale of Two Kings is really a tale of three kings. The chicken and the champion both make us want the third king more. Today, as we looked at the chicken and considered imperfect leadership, hopefully you experienced a longing to follow the perfect king, the perfect leader. But next week, we're going to look at the champion. And he's going to make us long for Jesus as well, but he's also going to give us a picture of what Jesus is like. Until then, your big idea, the phrase that I want you to remember at the top of your notes is simply this. God's people need a better leader. And you can decide to put your trust in him, not in any other king, because our God is the God of salvation. And even if you've trusted in him for your salvation, which most of us have, I trust, it's a daily decision to choose to follow, to choose to follow the greater king instead of the slavery that we were once submitted to. Like Paul told the Galatians not to submit again to a yoke of slavery. Do we really want our old life? Was it really better than following King Jesus? There's no part of our lives that don't need to be submitted to him. All who follow the perfect King Jesus will find that there is meaningful life and true joy. God's people need a better leader than anything that the world has to offer. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful for your word and the stories of the Old Testament and the opportunity to draw truth out of it. And we pray that as, uh, as we look at this text, as we think about it, as it has gone forth, we ask that uh, any errors or things that weren't said quite right or things that were explained imperfectly could still be used. We ask you to use the preaching of your word to change lives and hearts and create in us great affections for King Jesus. Help us not to put our trust in princes. Help us not to seek someone to follow or, or even to follow ourself or to follow our, the idols of our heart that we're constantly making and worshiping. Help us to only be satisfied with you. Give us a great love for you. And give us a desire to share that love with others. And we ask this in your son's name. Amen.